Hey, I'm here with John, and today we're I'm kind of doing a, a podcast here. Jason and I had done a podcast, and we've had technical difficulties on my end. Uh, and I wanted to make sure and let people know about uh, March, uh, uh, coming up March 11th, I think it is. Uh, I need to look, but uh, Jason will begin a class in hermeneutics, uh, uh, reading the Bible in community, which gets at uh, the approach that he's taking. And so I wanted to have a discussion on hermeneutics with John uh, and kind of point to then maybe I think the direction now Jason may jump in and later say oh no they've totally misunderstood but I, I don't think so uh, about the the way that scripture functions for us and the authority of scripture and so um, the the idea of biblical authority maybe even uh, you know this is N.T. Wright's point that uh, we often couch it in the idea that the function of the authority of Scripture is in some way, you can't disassociate that from the authority of God, that it's God's authority that stands behind Scripture. And, of course, this is the picture of Karl Barth, that uh, when you're talking about the Word, it's not simply Scripture or the Bible, but it's the person of Christ uh, that is... The you know the authority that we're uh, coming to, but John, let me uh, have you describe then. Well, how does one delineate between uh, you know how do you how do you distinguish or come to uh, an understanding of the word and delineate that from the 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 mm-hmm. the book? Yeah, I I'll preface it with just. The fact I'm not an exegete and um, a historian and uh, a th- historical theolo- theologian, systematic theologian, that uh, you could just begin by asking, well, where do we get the scriptures, the the Bible, as we call the collected scriptures that we have, and that now so many Christians think are authoritative, almost in the sense of a plenary verbal inspiration, word for word dictated. Where did that book even come from? And, um, of course, the truth is that the majority of those writings are Israel's scriptures that were collected, um, you know, sometime towards the end of the Old Testament period, but had been written down or passed along. And, I mean, you got to remember these people had scrolls, not books. So, you know, kept in collections of scrolls before that time by the high priests or in the temple or by the kings of Israel, um, and then later on were kept by rabbis who taught them and were taught in synagogues. And that there was sort of, and I think this is what you were getting on by the, or hopefully Jason's thinking this way, uh, hopefully I'm thinking the same way as Jason, in the sense of what the class is entitled, that this is a communal activity, and so those scriptures would have been read in the community. And people didn't really sit at home alone and read them by themselves or think that they could understand them by themselves, but they were Israel's scriptures, the scriptures of the nation. What did God, how was God revealing himself to his people as a corporate group? And then in the early church, you have people reflecting on those scriptures so that in the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, whenever anybody references scripture, 
you know, today we are kind of dumb and think that that's the Bible, but really it's the Old Testament. Israel scriptures are being referenced. So we have uh, the apostles and people that knew the apostles or sanctioned by the apostles writing reflectively about how the Old Testament scriptures are preaching the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. But of course, that's not how any good Jew in the, you know, first century BC would have thought about Israel's scripture. So they're saying something new has happened, and that's because Jesus, as the Son of God, has broken to time and space, and he is, as the Gospel of John says, explaining the Father to us. So that in some sense, we need to realize that the object of theological knowledge isn't just what what did the original author intend to say, or what does the what does the Bible itself say? But it really is what is the saving knowledge that is God's knowledge of who He is and how He's revealing Himself to His people over time. So the the distinction that you're making is the original. If your intent is to get at the original idea of the author, or the original intent of the author, well, the original authors didn't know. They didn't have the interpretive frame of Christ uh, given to them mm-hmm. yet. So they knew not completely about what they were writing. Yeah. So when Jesus meets the two on the road to Emmaus and describes himself as the center of those scriptures, he's giving them the interpretive frame that had been missing for even those who wrote these things down to comprehend them yeah. in their fullness. Yeah. So it is, I mean, in some sense, Scripture is truest when it's being preached to... Oh, that sounds terribly close to my... Uh, scripture is truest when it's being preached to the people of God. <laughs> I don't mean that it's not true otherwise. It just that's, that's where the power is. That's what's happening, is Jesus is being preached to the church, and that in some way makes us into the the kingdom. It's a, one way that we're made into the people of God. And of course, the the problem that arises in a Roman Catholic sense, and I think that it's off that uh, Luther's reaction to this is sometimes misunderstood with his sola fide, sola scriptura. Uh, I don't think Luther even meant that scripture, in some way, was to be read outside of the tradition. But he, uh, but what should be taken into account, and maybe implicitly even there uh, in, in Lutheranism, that drops out of later Protestantism, uh, that theology then is, uh, floats free, Bible reading floats free of tradition, so mm-hmm. that uh, a historical, you know, uh, theology should be the always be our the all of our theology is historical mm-hmm. theology so that we to say that we read scripture uh in community means well we're always reading the bible as part of the church mm-hmm. and that means the the concrete local community certainly it means that but it also means uh the church through the ages that uh we have to in some way accord with and and recognize and that is in no way globally globally yeah yeah. and uh reaching back from Mm -hmm. the early beginnings which is not to say that the tradition is functioning like it does in roman catholicism as the singular 
interpretive frame because there is no singular interpretive frame. And I think that's the great mistake to, in some way, you know, sort this out that, that one can speak ex cathedra. Uh, well, but there is, it does play an authoritative role in that uh, we understand that scripture is read and, and uh, understood from the early church and that, that in some way there is an accord that develops. And if in some way we come up with an inventive new understanding, you know, we can be sure we're wrong. Yeah. Uh, now that's not to say that there's not new insight. And so the the idea is, I think, a kind of triangulation. Uh, that there is the the scripture, there is the Bible, but we're understanding scripture not in the sense that it is simply the you know a historical critical or historical grammatical, uh, but that in fact ultimately what is taking place is that we have to in ourselves be deconstructed yeah which is i mean we can just use an example of this is the trinity i hope that all christians believe in the trinity meaning that the father son and the holy spirit are one being and three different persons now whatever you know how you explain that that gets a little bit more tricky but you know that's an insight into what's going on in scripture that isn't necessarily in Scripture. I mean, the word Trinity is not used in Scripture, nor is the formula, uh, you know, one being three persons, or one being of the same substance, homoousios, instead of homoousios. Well, that's sort of similar, you know. Um, so they, Christians, got together, and they're reading and reflecting on Scripture together, and what they, I mean, they're, this is 3, 325 A.D., some of them, aren't that far removed from the apostles themselves and what they believe the apostles to have been teaching. And they have an insight of how to explain the big picture of what Scripture is revealing about God. That's not an addition, some new thing, but it isn't right there in Scripture either. And so you have to... I'm always leery of somebody who says, well, the Bible says, you know, the Bible means or the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. Well, the Bible might say something, but what what is the perspective there what uh what what horizon does that make sense in mm -hmm. and we all have one so we, we got to be careful with that and and it's not that i mean in in a sense that uh we're continually it's not that we're simply interpreting scripture but we're also interpreting our own horizon in yeah. and through scripture we're being interpreted we are being interpreted yeah. that and i think this is the the picture in a uh typical modernist idea is that we leave out the interpreter yeah. uh, and imagine that it's some sort of purely scientific idea that, oh, you carry out these concrete, you know, steps. And, and what is, uh, you know, you bottom out with that. Once you reach uh, uh, the reading, the original intent of the author, it's mm -hmm. as if, oh, okay, well, we finished with that. And and what is left out of that is uh, that no, we're continually apprehending, understanding, uh, bringing together the two horizons, our own, and obviously we're referencing mm -hmm. Hans George Gadamer here, um, who, as I understand, you were ridiculed. They discovered you were reading Gadamer, and <laughs> <laughs> and people, you know, of a fundamentalist frame of mind. 
uh, who who uh, what could he possibly know? Yeah, what what could these what could these foreign people teach us? Uh, anyway, that's off the subject. <laughs> uh, that in in some way, what is recognized in somebody like Gadamer, and Gadamer, of course, is a student of Heidegger, is that the, its interpretation, its hermeneutics. Uh, all the way down, that we are continually in the process, and the difference that Christianity makes is that the interpretive frame that we're putting onto things is to be found in Christ, the church, and scripture uh, as a kind of threefold way of putting together a telescope, a lens to apprehend reality. Yeah, the way John Baer, popular Eastern Orthodox writer, says that the early church would not have, he's an expert on the early church, would not have seen a great distinction between what the tradition was preaching about Christ and what the scriptures were teaching about Christ. They saw those two things as going together. And really, Jesus is the main point. You have to get to know him. If you don't know Christ, you know, that's the point of Christianity. We're following Christ. We're not following uh, a book, because that would be so problematic in the sense of um, what we're talking about right now. And this is so maybe it would be easy if we laid out some examples of what sometimes happens in hermeneutics. So you have what's called the historical critical, or some people use the phrase historical grammatical, which isn't much different. They're just taking uh, literary techniques from the Enlightenment on about how you read texts and get to the meaning of texts and applying them to scripture as if scripture is just like any other history book, which that's your first problem. Um, but what that does is place a huge stress on the grammar being able to deliver the truth. I don't even think that modern language follows that convention very well a lot of the time. Some you know, people say things they don't mean. <laughs> um, knowing the how a, a sentence functions grammatically doesn't necessarily deliver the truth to you, but that's how that was a way of looking at scripture that has been um, very influential, at least in the English speaking world, and how people do exegesis. And that seems to be problematic, is what Paul's saying. People like Gadamer have said, "Well, hold on a second. Um, we're we don't stand at a neutral space to actually be able to analyze the grammar." as if we don't already have preconceived notions, or as if our world, the world that we live in, hasn't made us who we are to read it the way that we do, and even to characterize the world that we're reading about in a certain way. It's just, that's hermeneutics all the way down. But you see this come to a head, sort of, especially in um, Christianity in the United States. Uh, the Restoration Movement, Stone Campbell Movement, is built on this idea that they very quickly realized doesn't work very well, and that's Scottish common sense realism. Well, you know, if two people study scripture long enough and well enough, deeply enough, they'll come to the same conclusions because those conclusions are evident. It's just never actually worked. And there's a shared common sense. Yeah, that's a Kant, well, going back to Kant, that, you know, we have a framework that's in common, and that's how we interpret things and, uh, and no, what's, not really and what's being missed is well no actually there is 
the 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 idea of a, of a singular common sense is I mean if you ever yeah. move out of it makes no sense at all uh, live in a, a different culture and the other thing that I mean there's again there's a kind of perverseness you know Paul says the letter kills and mm-hmm. the spirit gives life whatever he meant by that I think that what he's capturing is there is always the tendency to imagine that the truth is contained in the letter, the grammar, the words. To be a fundamentalist. Uh, or just to be a sinner. Yeah. Uh, that sounds terrible. Well, I would equate those two things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm whispering now. <laughs> um, in other words, I think that you encounter the same thing in philosophy. Yeah. The whole philosophical enterprise, and I, I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of exceptions, but the exceptions are for the most part uh, exceptional know, uh, yes they're postmodern or Wittgensteinian but what is taking place in philosophy is the imagine is the understanding that truth is in language that is if that the language per se delivers the truth to us so you're talking about analytic philosophy uh, I don't know that it is simply analytic philosophy uh, I think that I'm thinking even of uh, uh, even in, in an ancient context. Certainly in analytic philosophy, I think that's the great fallacy. In the, in and I, I guess when I'm saying that, I'm, I didn't mean in the sense of the continental analytic divide. I meant an analytic way of doing philosophy. That so if that you, yeah, even if in you, the Middle Ages, you have logicians writing right. a type of analytic uh, philosophy. Yeah. And, and the idea, I mean, this does develop in an analytic philosophy, I think, is an outgrowth of a theological yeah. misconstrual yeah. that, oh, we're going to find the truth in the grammar, mm-hmm. which is pre-Anselmian, but it's actually the context. I mean, uh, yeah, Anselm. It's the context that gives us uh, Anselm. And so the letter kills, but the spirit mm-hmm. gives life. The idea is that, and, and it's not a pronouncement, in other words, I'm not saying that language is not adequate for the truth. I'm just saying that the truth per se is not contained yeah. in language. And so, too, God has spoken, but he's spoken to us in Christ, a person. And so we do not arrive at the truth simply by apprehending the letter, the grammar. Uh, whatever that might be, we apprehend the truth uh, in coming to know a person, and a person is never someone that you finish getting to know. Yeah, and certainly the person of God in Christ that we're talking about an ongoing process. There's an infinite dimension. We continue to be exegetes for eternity. Yeah that hermeneutics is the process that we're always about, I assume, that we'll always be in the business of apprehending, coming to understand ourselves and God uh, in a more complete sense. That's good. So that, uh, that gives you a... Now, is that... Uh, uh, you know, this is the, the thing that's brought against Bart, that in some way, oh, well, how do you... How do you know that uh, separate out Jesus? And it's not a matter of separating out Christ or 
or doing something like that. It's the idea that that, that is the frame of reference for, for reading scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you cannot imagine even creation. I mean, I think this is the significance of somebody like John Walton with his book on you know, the lost story of Genesis. I don't know that Walton's come to this, but I think what it's saying, and I think what he's arrived at is a New Testament understanding of the Old Testament, that when John says, in the beginning was the Word... Well, yeah, Richard Hayes is really the guy who starts that kind of thinking. Echoes and... The echoes, and, and, the, and but the idea that even creation yeah. uh, is only understood through recreation. Yeah. Even the act of creation is yeah. to be interpreted through the framework yeah. of Christ, and that's so. How do you read the? How do you read scripture? Well, perhaps we should look at how the apostles read scripture, <laughs> um, and it does seem to be that that there, when you're preaching Jesus, you're then talking about something that's theological, that is encompassing of creation, salvation, redemption, revelation. And scripture is the key and the authoritative witness of who Jesus is, so that you literally meet Jesus in the pages of scripture. And do you meet Jesus, you know... Literally, what a bad word to use in this conversation. Yeah. (laughs) You meet Jesus in the pages of scripture. (laughs) And, uh, you know, who is Christ, or how do you meet him? Well, of course, you meet him in the fellowship of the saints. You meet him... uh, That it is not that Christ is in some way reducible... To the words, the yeah. grammar on the page, but there is the, the any more than a person. Mm-hmm. See, this is the this is the great modernist mistake. Mm-hmm. The you know cogito, I think, therefore I am. What is being imagined in a Cartesian framework is that you can reduce the person to the thought. Mm-hmm. That in some way you can capture in the language the being yeah. of the individual. Which is just a not a, it's a misunderstanding of what a human being is, but it's also a misunderstanding of what language is. Yeah. Now, I think that's an interesting misunderstanding because I think it's not just the modernist problem, but it's the problem that's there in Genesis that you know that the knowledge of good and evil is a means, and uh, the epistemology or the knowing becomes a way of being. And what we're imagining is that we can in some way know Scripture in, or know God or know, have certainty in some sort of exhaustive modernist sense. That we can know it from, uh, you know, exhaustively. This is actually the discussion I was having with Jason, is the term certainty. Do we have certainty? How would you answer? <laughs> Oh, what a what a funny question! And I guess. think I think <laughs> in order it depend. It's a in part it's a matter yeah. of semantics. If you mean we have certainty in a modernist sense that it's a mathematical or it's a completely reductionist certainty, and that we can in some way know from the bottom up foundationalism. Well, in a, yeah, a way of so thinking about the question. Jesus is a historical figure, but what you say, what you mean when you say Jesus is a historical figure is that the Son of God has become incarnate as a human being. You cannot study that historically. 
because there's nothing to compare it to. I mean, historical events are studied in such a way that you're you're comparing them to other historical events. But what you've done is stated a paradox in history. This is Kierkegaard, essentially. Yeah. So is Jesus historical? Absolutely. Uh, and I don't, I'm not don't think of the historical Jesus stuff as, as I'm saying this. If you're, you're listening along, but just yes, the the death and resurrection of Christ's in some way a historical <laughs> event. It happened in time. It touches us, but at the same time, it's paradoxical. It doesn't make sense. It cannot be studied as any historical event can be studied, and so you, there is this sort of tension. I'm thinking about the term certainty. Mm-hmm. Well, we can be certain. You could say you're certain that it happened, but that doesn't mean that you could prove it, because there's it's impossible to prove the incarnation. I I, I want to agree with you, but I want to I wonder if that any historical event can be proven. Well, Kierkegaard gets into that too, and and yeah. and the problem is that we're always yeah. framing events, and we're always making them cohere uh, in a larger. Frame. In other words, an event is not anything in and of itself. You know, somebody takes a, a, a sword and runs someone through. Uh, that could be a murder. It could be an act of war. Yeah. It could be... Yeah. Uh, you don't know what the event is apart from a frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And I think what we have in Christ is a new frame of reference for all of history. That the, the philosophy of history does not cohere any more than any other philosophical framework coheres outside of Christ. History coheres in the incarnation and resurrection. Is the resurrection a historical event? Well, it does not accord with any other event, but it is the, you know, breaking into history that makes sense of history. But maybe that's not what you were... No, it is and it isn't. I was just saying that on your point on what what is certainty, mm-hmm. but and when your point's good about hermeneutics, though, is that there's an irreducibleness to events because every and this is Kierkegaard as well that every event is one in which people are interpreting it, even as they experience it. So that uh, history is not a recollection of the facts. It can't be. It's always two horizons colliding, right? And what makes sense? Well, I think I think what you're getting in the emerging church and the whole kind of, uh, you know, kind of nihilistic Christianity that continually staring into the abyss of uncertainty, uh, of, of of kind of giving, you know, people are talking about a complete relativity or relativism. I think, in a strange way, that's not postmodern, but that's modern. Mm-hmm. That is just the end of modernity and imagining that the way that knowledge functions for us is in some sort of foundational deductive framework. And uh, certainly where you end up is complete uncertainty Mm -hmm. about anything uh, because you understand the foundation is falling apart. And so I don't think Christianity leaves us in that sort of relativity. Nor do I believe in a in a modernist foundationalism, which leads you there. Yeah. But, but what you've got to understand is that uh, there is the passage in uh, what is it Hebrews eleven that talks about faith as being certain of things mm-hmm. hoped for, and so faith is prior to the certainty. That is that it's it, it you can live out a certainty. 
you can be sure of things, having assurance, but it's not uh, uh, completely reducible. You, you recognize in that statement it's built upon faith. And so it is faith on the order of trust, trust in a person. Uh, it is not uh, a kind of, you know, not irreducible, uh, you know, chemical, mathematical formula that you're talking about. And so I think, yeah, there's certainty, but the word, you know, this is Wittgenstein's last book uh, on certainty. And he's dealing with G.E. Moore, who holds up his hand and says, can I be certain this is my hand? And Wittgenstein's point is, well, you can play that game and yeah. pretend like, yeah. but you're doing it on the basis of a web of understanding that allows you to play the game. Mm-hmm. So to give yourself over to doubt even, you know, this is uh, the, the, the idea that doubt is the... Uh, what you're missing is that web of uh, a necessary, you know, what just makes up our our frame of knowing. It's interesting that, um, I mean, this is part of the shift that you get in Heidegger and other people. Um, You know, a part of this is, as you said, with the turn with the cogito ergo sum, uh, we are thinking things and a privileging of epistemology and a privileging of the question, what can be known, when, as, as you were saying, to even play that game, it's like, well, there are already existing things. There, the furniture's all already there that you're messing with. Uh-huh. So what if you said, well, it's not that kind of game. It's, it's about, what is there? <laughs> and... Um, I think in that sense, then you you get into a metaphysical thought that does lead you more to saying, well, there, you know, there has to be a source of being. God is a source of being. Without Christian reflection, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But and that's the point. In Christ, all of this coheres. That in Christ, you have both an explanation of why is there anything at all, but also uh, why is there meaning to what there is. That that the meaning then is trans it transcends yeah. it uh, it comes to us yeah. from, from God uh, outside of the the frame of knowing. So again, and you know the letter the, the letter kills, but the spirit yeah. gives life. Paul's referring to the law, yeah, and I understand that. But what I'm saying is the language per se can function like the law functions. Yeah. That we imagine there's life in the law. We imagine there's life in language per se. This, you know, can take many frame. You know, in Japan, people literally think of being speaking mm-hmm. Japanese as containing the essence of Japaneseness. Uh, of course, they're not the originators of that. It comes out of Great Britain, in which the mm-hmm. English thought that being speakers of this peculiarly rich and fulsome language made the British the most superior people on, in the, the world. Uh, that there is a linguistic snobbery uh, that is attached, I think, to every tribalism and nationalism. But that repeats itself in many frames of reference. Uh, I think that's the philosophical frame, that you're imagining uh, that the grammar, the truth, you know, this is the Anselmian project. Anselm is reducing, you know, in the ontological argument, he is giving us a necessary reason 
that is, he's imagining the word of man and the word of God are parallel, and that if we get to the bottom of the word of man, it will take us to the place of language, the essence of what a human being is, and there we encounter the word of God and that they're synonymous. I think that's the grand tragedy of uh, the, the departure that he makes, both in his monologion and in the ontological argument. That is, he's equating, he's doing what philosophy always does. He imagines that there is a parallel access to God or uh, the divine essence, not through revelation you know, given to us in Christ, but simply through the fact that we speak language. I think that gives us the historical. In a, in a strange way, that brings us back around to the whole idea, oh, if we just get at the grammar, we just understand the original intent. No, what we're trying to do is get at uh, the person and work of Christ. So, uh, the the is there a deep grammar to theology? Not that way. The deep grammar is Christ. The deep grammar is the, is a person. It's not a substance or a thing. I've struck you. Yeah, well, I'm just, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> I, mean, well, I, agree, I agree with your conclusion. Go, I just, go ahead and tell me how you uh, I mean, Anselm is, that's one way of saying what Anselm is saying. Another way of reading it would be to say, here's, a monk who is at the core of that argument is also a distinction between is, is to simply say that the man of the word of man and the word of God are not synonymous. That I have seen you and I have seen nothing is to posit that there is a, this difference between what God is and what the world is. Now I understand how if you read it as, if you read it as a if you read it as saying the meaning is in the words. If you read it as an analytic argument, then that's what it sounds like. But if you read it in the context of uh, the mysticism of the era previous to him, that's not what it sounds like. So I just, I don't know what I think. <laughs> well, he, I mean, and I'm, uh, if I'm projecting backward, I think that this, it, it, in, a, in a sense, if I'm doing harm to Anselm, it's the same harm that, in other words, it is, I'm being true to a modernist framework. That's, that's definitely true. So what, my, if I'm making a mistake... Whatever the case is, that's how it ends up being taken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I true. mean, my that's argument true. would be, it would be there, it's there in Anselm, yeah. because he literally uh, describes coming to self-identity with the self. That in some way there is a gap within the self, and this gap is sin. It's a gap in my will. It's an incapacity to proper will. But what, do you know, I mean, what does Anselm mean by will? Uh, the power to rightly remember. I don't think that's what Anselm means by will. What do you think? I think Anselm means that, so in a medieval framework, intellect is what would set your end, and then will is the means by accomplishing it. And so, if you were going to read Anselm in that context of what medieval people meant by medieval language, 
is that Anselm would be saying, so even if we can identify God as our proper end through the intellect, I don't think this way of speaking is helpful, just that's the way they spoke, then the will, a rightly working will, would allow you to accomplish that. He doesn't think, he thinks sin has in some way encumbered your will, and so that what's happening isn't you rightly remembering yourself, as you can't do that, that's the problem, but in, in the sense that he is Augustinian and following Plato, he would think that God is not out there to be known. You don't know God from his effects, but you do know God from, it's an innate knowledge, so that's true. But he would still think that the function of the will is so that we can rightly come to our end, which is something other than us, God. Which, I mean, that's, doesn't everybody think that? that? That's the problem with sin, is that what we were created to be is beings who live in the image and likeness of God and need to grow into that image and likeness, and that's the work of eternity. And in some way, sin has made that impossible. I think that you're, uh, in other words, uh, in, in this, I think uh, uh, Augustine is better than Anselm. But Anselm is working within an Augustinian framework. But he, I think he, in fact, does not understand this to the degree that Augustine does. In De Trinitate, you know, Augustine is talking about the metaphor of the individual as the trinity and the trinity that we can understand the trinity in and through ourselves i think augustine is actually he gives us an analogy he gives us an analogy and augustine's better than the problematic or not problematic i don't know it depends on how you take it and even in augustine you know there's the picture of the revelation breaking into that but what you have in anselm in the monologion is a a monologue taking place within thought in which Uh, to rightly remember, as long as there are a multiplicity of words. You know, he argues that Christ is a singular word. And as long as there are a multiplicity of words, then you're not arriving at the place of language. You're not arriving at the essence of the word. And so the stream of thought needs to come to the essence of thought by arriving at a singularity, which is not a multiplicity of words, but it's the singular word Christ. What I've just described to you is the cessation of thought, in which thought climbs out of itself to a kind of encounter that he's going to equate with the beatific vision. Yeah, you're also using a language, though, that is foreign to Anselm. No, I'm, I'm quoting the monologium. Language climbs up out of itself. Well, I'm not quoting. I, I, I think. I think there's. I don't know. I don't. He, I, I think Anselm read historically is not saying that. He is arriving at an ontological shift in which, in the monologion, in which he's going to describe uh, a comparison that you can continually do a comparison of one thing to another. Until you arrive at that which is completely incompatible. Mm -hmm. And that then is the thing that you arrive at through the comparison. But he says you can't arrive at it. It's that there's an ont- so this if you read this in the context of the patristics, what he's just done for you is to simply say God is beyond being. 
God is not the fastest something. God is not the best something. God is not a something at all that functions on that order. That would be wonderful if he stopped there. But he, ne, uh, the next work is the proslogion mm. in which he gives us the ontological argument in which he says something than which nothing greater can be thought. Now we're able to think we're working from... An well, it's just the opposite, though. If you, if you take the meaning, rather than playing the words off of each other, if you just take the meaning, and realizing that, yes, it's tautologist, and there's this problem, but if what he's saying is something that cannot, nothing greater can be thought. That's what God is. It's not that you're, you're thinking God. It's to say that if you put that with the monologion, there's a chain that you can't arrive at. But if this thing is to be, well, he says, if this thing is to be thought, then it must be said to exist. Because it's true. He's giving us the essence of God in a thought that we have access to God through this thought. I think that Anselm leads to it. This is why Descartes Mm -hmm. likes Anselm. uh, That the cogito is in miniature the ontological argument. Modernity is in miniature, the outworking. And I'm not, you know, is Anselm better than this? Oh, he may be. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying in the monologion and in the proslogion, what we have, I think, is the same frame in which, this is our discussion, Mm -hmm. that we imagine we can arrive at the truth in and through the word. Little w, human language. I think that's the great fallacy of the human condition that modernity is a manifestation of and i think anselm is the most brilliant example Mm. of he he is the prime example of a kind of beautiful genius that would produce god from out of your pocket that would give us an argument and he would hold it out like a little icon or idol and say here here's god something than which nothing greater can be thought. Now, does it arrive because of the the context in which he's working? Oh, absolutely. But I think that context then is leading. You know, this is the the irony of so much of uh, even Descartes' cogito first appears even in Augustine in a particular, you know, frame. I forget the Augustinian phrase, but it's a very similar phrase. But I think what happens between Augustine and Anselm is, I don't think Anselm is entirely aware of it, that there is this turn to grammar. And suddenly theology has, has this great interest in grammar. And I think what is missed is, is the, uh, the turn in, to the interior. He is, after all, a, in a monastery. He's a monk. They're meditating. Well, that's just the Platonic tradition, too. I mean, uh, that's where Augustine and Anselm are definitely in the Platonic tradition in the sense that they think that there's some kind of innate knowledge of God rather than... So that's, I mean, that's the difference with people who come later who are reading Aristotle who think, no, God can't, isn't known innately, but God is known, is demonstrated by his, uh, his effects. Yeah. Uh, is God known innate, innately? I don't think so, no. 
I don't. I, Isn't that the discussion? The whole question is is so odd for us compared to them too, because of course when we ask that, we're holding that question out over above the abyss of atheism, and they weren't. Right. Right. So I don't. I mean, I don't. It doesn't function the same. But no, I. I don't find that as helpful. Personally, I don't find the ontological argument helpful. I find it more than not helpful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it works. Well, do, yeah, the logic definitely works. Yeah, I just, but what it works to do, it, what, what is it? It's a, a, dem, a, a demonstration of a form of thought mm-hmm that works in and of itself the same way that mathematics works the yeah, same it's a thing. Type of self-contained logic. It is a self-contained logic that I'm not sure isn't irrefutable yeah. at some level. If you bought it. Is what if you bought it, it. It's irrefutable and it's wrong. Now that, that shouldn't be. <laughs> and so that's the discussion. You know, revelation breaks into that. Bre- revelation breaks into this closed box this irrefutable logic, this necessary violence that is constitutive of human thought outside of the frame of, of, of who Christ mm-hmm. is. So I think we read Scripture not because it is a parallel understanding to our irrefutable logic, but that it undoes our logic, that it's an, a counter logic, that what is being countered is the very foundation of an understanding that exists outside of Christ that is demonstrated in the cogito, in the monologion, in the ontological argument. And I, I don't mean to, to reduce sin to the ontological argument, but what you get in divine satisfaction is a necessary argument for the death of Christ on the order of the ontological argument that makes the necessity of Christ an eternal necessity to uh, uh, bring about divine satisfaction. So I think it's of a whole. I mean, satisfaction is a noun for Anselm. Jesus is not satisfying the wrath of God. So be careful. I mean, I guess my fear is to drive the point home, I don't want to oversimplify everything. And so I think that, I mean... Is Christ's death necessary for you to have salvation? That's what Anselm's saying. He's not saying that Christ's death was necessary uh, for God to save us. He's saying this is the way... I mean, he literally says, because of God's love and wisdom, God has chosen to offer up a satisfaction. But the satisfaction isn't the death, it's the obedient incarnation. It, yeah. I mean, it, I, it's a, the metaphor makes no sense to us, because it's it all it's only makes sense within a chivalrous feudalistic system and so i realize that it's problematic for i wouldn't use it and again <laughs> i mean I, I just don't think that i don't think that he's saying though that it's necessary that god ha- i do not think he's saying god has to sacrifice christ in our stead to take care of his wrath no i i okay. I, I don't think he's okay. saying that but did calvin think he was saying that or does Calvin? Yeah, I don't know how much Calvin quotes him, but yeah, you're, that's Calvin saying that. Yeah, certainly yeah. Calvin's saying yeah. that. So again, if I, even if I'm wrong yeah. about Anselm, and Anselm is, is in some way yeah. redeemable, uh, yeah. that what develops out of Anselm is the grand tragedy 
Yeah, I mean, you can indict Augustine that way. Yeah. So what develops out of the Augustin, Augustinian tradition? Of, uh, so, uh, I, and, and as I say this, I, Anselm is the most likable mm-hmm. of people. People loved Anselm. Yeah, he was a good friend. He was a wonderful friend. <laughs> uh, he, he, people just, uh, and so I don't mean to reduce him down to these. And I think he himself yeah. would say, well, if this is helpful, yeah. and he does say yeah. it. If it isn't, don't use it. Yeah. yeah. If this is helpful, yeah. use it. If yeah. it's not, don't yeah. use it. Well, I didn't. Act, I mean, I guess my fear is not, and I don't mean to be argumentative, uh, is I wouldn't want to reduce. I feel like it's an oversimplification to say this Christianity is this thing, and everything else is the same mistake. Because I think that, um, I mean, the mistake in rejecting Christianity is probably always some form of uh, misdirected desire, idolatry, covetousness, the things that you're hitting, it's because of a lie. But I don't know if it always manifests in exactly the same way. In the sense of a necessary... It sounded like you were saying that the ontological argument, that kind of reasoning, is then characteristic of everything that is not Christianity. No, no, okay. I okay. no, no, I didn't mean that. That uh, the, there is no characteristic. No, that's all. Yes, okay. So that's what I meant. I didn't want. Yeah, to... no, that there would be an infinite, infinite variety of manifestations of, of. Because I think on the flip side, in Aristotelian, so what we've been talking about is mainly the problems the Platonic tradition gives us. But I think the Aristotelian tradition, taken to the same extent, gives you a different set of problems that are just as wretched. I mean, so either, okay, this is good, because this is what happens in modernity. You either have rationalism, or you have um, a radical empiricism. And I think either, if applied to interpretation, are probably misdirected. Yeah, well, run down, what's, what... Uh... Like an empiricism in the sense that, um, I mean, just the scientific method absolutized. So you get a scienti- natural science, scientism made absolute and this is what knowledge is and this is the way you find things out so as if every you know when we come to scripture are we digging around trying to put things together no but neither is it just innately there in the word yeah i i think that both are uh, problematic well i get the the sense in which i meant in other words there is a, anselm's argument he says is a necessary argument and I don't mean that it's always the same necessity, mm-hmm. but I think it is always a necessity. It's sort of like Jack Bauer. What is always a necessity? Well, that, that, that in some way that we're led to a point, you know, Jack Bauer has to torture the, whoever it is he has to gain information yeah. to save the world. That's a kind of necessity. Yeah. But what is the necessity as you're using, what's, so in the context of hermeneutics, what's the necessity that's problematic when you're doing interpretive work? That what tends to happen, we use a logic, and not a singular logic, but the logics all share the same deep grammar, that they're going, the logics drive us to a singular place that could be called a necessity. Whether it's the necessity of Anselm, the it, has nece- it has to be this way. Jack Bauer has to yeah. torture somebody. What? Um, so in this, con- I'm thinking more of people listening. What do you mean by deep grammar in that context? 
I'm using a Chomskyan picture here of linguistics in which he imagines that all languages share a grammar and that that this deep grammar is not one that we necessarily have access to in Chomsky's understanding. And interestingly, when I use the word deep grammar, I'm not sure that's exactly what I meant because what you have in somebody... Uh, you know, what's happening in modernity, in modern philosophy, it's almost like they imagine you can access the deep grammar apart from the proposition or the theory. What Chomsky's actually saying is you never arrive at the, the fullness of the deep grammar. That is simply the faith, that's the paradigm, that's the parameter. And as long as we're studying language, we're always arriving at the deep grammar. So I think that a legitimate usage of the term deep grammar is the way we should do theology. Theology is always arriving at, I'm assuming that there's a unified understanding that is to be found in the work of Christ that we might call the deep grammar. And that we continue, in other words, it allows for a kind of a seeming you know, incongruities But the belief is, the faith is, that if we continue this project, that those incongruities will work themselves out. And my believing this thing does not depend upon, you know, a certainty or uh, being able to explain all of the incongruities because the faith is in the deep grammar. So maybe I was using the term in two ways. I think that in in, in some ways people are imagining we have access in an exhaustive way to the deep grammar. I think that uh, is characteristic of modernity. But what I would do is say, yes, but that's even there in Anselm. In other words, we we can't arrive at the word in a comprehensive way. So what you said, uh, tell me if I've, I've misunderstood. You're saying that either if it is the case that we think that by some innate knowledge that we are going to arrive at the complete truth of something through the grammar, that's incorrect. Or, if the other way around, we think we don't have that innate knowledge, but we think that empirically we can arrive at the absolute truth of the thing when we come to the text, that that is incorrect. Both are incorrect. Yeah, that's good. And so that on the flip side, there's sort of... Um, the I saw, I saw the equivocation there a little bit with the deep grammar, but on the flip side, there is an inexhaustible truth that um, we live in, because it's not one that we're trying to comprehend, or it would be impossible for us to comprehend, but it is such that we can live and grow and understand, and that's how Scripture functions for us in the community. Yeah, the, the person and work of Christ is not a word that we arrive at in some final sense. I don't think we have a beatific vision in that sense. I think we're continuing... Well, neither to most people who yeah, talk yeah. about the beatific vision, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, uh, that we're continually arriving at, I think, for eternity. Yes, yes. God is, in his essence, incomprehensible. Yes. Yeah. But comprehensible. Understandable. Yes, <laughs> that we can comprehend, we can understand... But we, he is not comprehensible in in the, the meaning of that word as an exhaustive yeah. Yeah. comprehension. Yeah. 
in, in a sense, that's not just God. That's everything. That's creation itself. In the sense that it particip- flows from. Yeah, we can. Can we? Do we ever get to the yeah. bottom of yeah. things? No, I mean, th- thankfully, physical science has even realized. Physicists have realized this. So we can understand, yeah. but the the understanding is of an infinite depth. Yeah. Yeah. That there are quarks, and there's yeah. you know, yeah. that the atom breaks down, and that. To imagine that we arrive at the finger of God yeah. is kind of... That, no, even mm-hmm. science is... And so I think that a right understanding of God, a right understanding of creation, uh, is included then. Uh, certainly theology uh, should not uh, have the sort of hubris, mm-hmm. or hermeneutics should not have the sort of hubris, that would imagine, oh, now we mm-hmm. have arrived. Which is sort of reflective of an imminent frame. Um, and so I think what you're getting at is that even when we're reading scripture, there's room for the transcendent. So that there's a real communication happening between who God is and who we are. Whereas if, in the sense I was using imminent, an imminent frame, it's we can get to the bottom of the meaning of the text. But your point is that the meaning, and I think rightly so, the meaning of the text is actually connected to who God himself is, and so you're not going to get to the bottom of that. You're never done reading the Bible. That's right. You're never done reading the Scripture. You're never about getting to know Christ. And that's what we're reading. Good conversation.